Thank you, Tavi. <clears throat> well, if you have your Bibles this morning, I'd like to invite you to turn uh, to Proverbs chapter 16. Last week, if you'll remember, we had probably, I think, one of the most practical lessons uh, that you would ever uh, hope to have as we looked at verses 6 and 7 out of Proverbs chapter 16. We focused the, the lesson around uh, two great words, uh, mercy and truth. And we talked about that our, the depth of our relationship with God is clearly and simply based on our understanding of what God did for us. It's so simple. It's so easy. You know, we love to make the Christian life so complicated, but it really isn't. We do or don't do for God simply based on our understanding of what he did for him. The folks in this church, as in any church, who really commit themselves to the work of the Lord uh, will be those who really grasp a depth of what God has done for them. It's, it's just that simple. And, and we're, you know, it, it, it's so easy. Uh, how many times over the years have I talked about 1 Corinthians chapter 3, that great chapter that basically deals with the judgment seat of Christ, where it says that we all shall appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And I told you how uh, uh, many times I've, I've laid out for you how that the Bible says that when you get saved, you lay a foundation. That foundation is Jesus Christ. And then he talks about the three things that we build on that foundation. You probably know them by heart. The first thing he says is gold. The next thing he says is silver. And then the third thing is precious stones. And how many times I've told you what they really represent. Gold in the Bible represents the deity of Christ. Silver in the Bible represents the price of redemption. And precious stones in the Bible will always represent people. And it's, the format is so clear, so simple, right along with their study on mercy truth. Gold on that foundation. The more you learn about the Lord Jesus Christ, gold, the more you're going to want to tell people about him, silver. The more you understand what he did for you, you're going to want to tell more people about that. And in time, it results in the precious stones. Knowing who God is, gold, knowing what he did for you, the silver, and then telling other folks about it. Everything we do is based on our understanding of what God has done for us. The gold standard of our life as a Christian is understanding the price that was paid for our salvation. And you remember I showed you the importance of how God will put two words together, like mercy and truth. And I gave you a number of them last week. And how important that is to show us how that those two words have to work together. Then we looked at verse 7 and I gave you what I believe is, is another incredibly important concept. The importance of knowing what is of God and what is not of God. You know, so much confusion today. You know, I, I never presume to speak for you when I preach uh, or when I make a statement. I, 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 many times I'm speaking to myself. And for me, I, I know it's so true. I have wasted enough time in my life. We all have, but I know for me, I have wasted enough time in my life. 
And the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 16, God in his goodness and mercy, he allows us to redeem the time that we've lost. What an incredible concept. Most of God's people don't even know the process to be able to do that. But it's true. We waste time in our lives, and then there comes a point in our life when we realize what we've done. God gives us the ability to redeem the things that we lost. But I don't redeem them by getting involved in things that God's not involved in. And I have one goal in life. I'm saved. I'm on my way to heaven. I have no doubts, no fears about that whatsoever. I have one goal in my life, and that is for the rest of my life to make as few as stupid mistakes as possible. Then we looked at the incredible concept of making your enemies be at peace with you. What a great concept that is. Uh, based on the importance of you understanding and knowing sound doctrine, having a sound faith, understanding the depth of the Bible, that when you see something or somebody brings something to you or gives you a piece of information, that you immediately know whether it's of God or whether it's not. And because of your understanding of the Scriptures, your ability to use the Bible, they have nothing to say. They have to hold their peace because there's nothing to say alongside the Bible when you're in error. And I gave you, if you remember, two great examples of this. I used them because they were very easy to illustrate. One was in a Christian context. The other one was in a not a Christian context. The first one I showed you is the way to biblically start a church or to, to, uh, to build a church. The second one was dealing with false religions and cults. How that when you are faced with these things, that because of the depth that you have in the sound doctrine, people who are wrong, people who are in cults, people who are not doing the things of God the way that God says they need to be done, have, no, have really nothing to say. The fact that God has a book of patterns, the Word of God, this is so crucially important. And in the Bible, the book of patterns will be the way that we should do all things. I showed you last week a great verse out of Hebrews chapter 8, verse 5, how that when Moses made the tabernacle, that God had a pattern that he gave him. That tabernacle represented something for the nation of Israel that was unprecedented. That tabernacle was the closest thing they ever got to Jesus Christ and God. And when God wanted them to have that instrument called the tabernacle, he wanted it done a certain way. And boy, anybody who's read Arthur Pink's book in Exodus or some of the other great books that are out there, what an intricate thing that tabernacle was. The Bible goes into such absolute essential detail about the, 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 the knobs and the flowers and the, and the carvings and the, and the ornamentation all around it. It's incredible. Everything he talks about represents something with Christ and God in our relationship. It's incredible. And yet the Bible says that when God wanted the nation of Israel to have that tabernacle, the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 5, God was clear to tell Moses, Moses, you make that after the pattern I gave you. There's a pattern for everything in our Christian lives. 
Hebrews chapter 9, verse 23, the Bible says, The heavens declare the glory of God in Psalm chapter 33, verse 6. But in Hebrews chapter 9, it says that when God created those heavens, He had a pattern that He used. He does everything by a pattern. Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 6, you know what he said? He said, look, Timothy, the struggles that I have went through, the tribulation and the trials that I have been through in my life are a pattern for you. And I'm telling you something, as you and I read the Bible some 1,900 years later, the things that Paul went through are a pattern for you and for me of what ought to be in our faith. Titus chapter 2, verse 7, Paul told young Titus, he says, young men, which Titus was, he says, young men are to have a pattern of good works in their life based on good doctrine. Everything's a pattern. Everything's a pattern. Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 15, that he that is spiritual judgeth all things. <clears throat> a lot of people talk about the fact that, you know, you shouldn't judge me. They'll pull up the verse out of Matthew, which has nothing to do with the church age, and they'll say, judge not, lest you be judged. Well, the Bible says, he that is spiritual judgeth all things. Now, notice it didn't say people. It said things. I don't have a right to judge you for what you do or what you don't do, because you're going to stand before God just like I am. And you can find as much wrong with me as I could find wrong with you. So I don't have a right to judge you in what you do or not. You'll stand before God. But let me tell you something. I do have a right to judge what you're doing if it's going to come into my life and impact me or not. You can do whatever you want to do, but what you do, I make a judgment call on is it of God or is it not of God? And if it is, it is of God, I'll allow it in. But if it's not of God, according to the patterns, I don't want anything to do with it. It's just that simple. Being able to have the discernment, to be able to discern when God is in something or when he's not. Hey, we live in absolute crazy times. We live in times when Christians are just like the world. And they justify everything they do in the world from the Bible. And it's so easy for someone like yourself that is young and learning and growing to get caught up. What a marvelous thing. What an incredible tool to have. What an absolute essential aspect of the Christian life to be able to look at something and say, that's of God, that's not. Boy, would that solve some problems for us. Never coming to the place in our lives, in anything, where we think or convince ourselves that in anything that we do, that you and I are an exception to the clear patterns of God. That all the patterns exist for everybody else, but when I want to do what I want to do, they don't apply to me. Bible says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, he says that the Christian life is likened to a race that we run. And he says a young man will strive for the masteries. But then it says, but he's not crowned. And he's not crowned because in his run, in his race, in his race for life through life, he didn't run lawfully. You've got to do it by the book. I think that's one of the reasons that 
many times military men when they get their life turned around for the Lord have an easier time accepting some of these things than maybe just the, the ordinary young man or young lady growing up today. Not that there isn't young men and young ladies that do. But yet military men have grown up in a regimented system that goes by the book. They understand the concept. Thursday, uh, Wednesday night in our few meeting, Bill Tillman got up and talked about the turkey hunt. And I want to tell you, the place was packed with young uh, couples, and we've got several of them coming to the, coming to the picnic, on, uh, and some of them are coming over to Steve's to help cook. And we're, some of you couples are now actually infusing yourself. He spent two or three days with them. And I'll tell you what, you're beginning to see how they're paying attention, that there's something different here. And it's an incredible concept. But the ability to be able to, to be able to look at things in life and be able to say, you know what? This is of God and this is not. And it all comes down to a regimented Christian lifestyle that follows the pattern, as they say in the military, by the book. You do it the way the Bible says it needs to be done. Now, today... We're going to look at Proverbs chapter 16, verse 8. We're only going to get one verse done today, but I think it's a great verse, worthy of our attention, worthy of our complete time today. I know that most of you who've been around here for any length of time, you know and understand that we are in the Laodicean church period. We know that the Bible lays out in Revelation chapter 3, the transition from the greatest period in church history, which we know as the Philadelphian church history, as we moved around the turn of the 1900s and into the 19, from the 1800s into the 1900s, we began to move into what we commonly now understand would be the Laodicean church period. Undoubtedly unprecedented, the most worthless, the most unbelievably carnal aspect that the church has ever experienced in 2,000 years of church history. It's the last church before Jesus Christ comes back. It's the church that Laodicea means rights of the people. It's a church where they don't care about God's rights anymore. It's a church that cares nothing about the things of God. In fact, the great parallel, excuse me, the great contrast between the two churches, one is called the Church of the Open Door, that would be Philadelphia. The other one's called the church of the closed door. Completely closed to everything. And yet, that church, Laodicea, is functioning unbelievably. If you walked into the average Laodicean church today, if you didn't understand your Bible, you would not realize and recognize the apostasy that you're standing in the midst of. It comes back to what I said. Your ability to discern what is of God and what is not of God by the principles of the Word of God. And, uh, you know, when I, was, when I was growing up in the 70s as a young Christian, I must confess that our concept of the Laodicean church has changed. Back in the 70s, we all thought that the Laodicean church was the churches that come out of the Reformation, the churches like the Methodist Church and the Presbyterian Church, 
who honestly and fundamentally back in the 20s and the 1800s were pretty fundamentally strong. You realize some of the greatest soul-winning preachers that ever preached across this planet were Methodists? They were incredible preachers. And when we back in the 70s, me being a young man, when we looked because of our limited view, we had no idea. I had no idea. If somebody would have told me back in 1971 that the church of Jesus Christ that once stood on the Word of God would now embrace lesbianism, homosexualism, would now bring social drinking into their churches, that the great Baptist churches that once stood for the truth of the Word of God now have went by the wayside and are bringing in wine-testing contests. They see celebrity poker on television and, 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 and they bring it into the church because you give your winnings to the church as an offering. Write that down, Bob. We may want to do something with that a little bit later on. I never would have believed it. My whole thinking has changed in the last 30 or 40 years. I've actually, we've actually experienced where the church of Laodicea wasn't the Methodists and the Presbyterians. It was the once founded Baptist churches that believed the Bible, preached the Bible, who has went into the falling away of apostasy, that now where pastors once stood and preached the Word of God, their churches now have become the megachurch concept of an elusive object that just does nothing. It has a form of godliness, but denies the very power thereof. And today we're going to look at Proverbs chapter 16, verse 8. And we're going to look at a verse... The one little verse, one little verse destroys and goes against everything you see portrayed as Christianity today. And we'll see some really good practical material. Let's read Proverbs chapter 16, verse 18, or verse 8, excuse me. And it simply says this, better is little with righteousness than great revenues without right. Bill Tillman, where are you at? Stand up and ask God blessing for us this morning on the preaching of the Word of God. Amen. Thank you, Bill. Better is little with righteousness than great revenues without right. Now, here's one verse that has an incredible practical impact. And we want to take this verse and we want to break it down first and then we want to develop it. We saw this concept Early on in chapter 15 of Proverbs, I think it was verse 6, and again in 16, and I think 15, 27, about the investment of your life, the revenue of your life. 
And we talked about how that the more that you have, the more complex life becomes. This is one of those incredible universal truths that would be found all down through history and all through the Bible. You know, it's true in the history of our own country. The verse is so true. We were much better off morally and righteously in 1700 and 1800 without electricity, electronics, cell phones, computers, emails, Facebook, MySpace, in your face, the stock markets, swimming pools, big houses with two and three car garages, and all the other material things that we are told make our lives easier, but in reality instead has put us into a state of athapy. And I don't know what athapy means, but I heard it and it sounded good to use. <laughs> Made our lives more comfortable, but put us asleep. Once upon a time, America had a real desire for a sense of truth. There was a time in America when she had a sense of a moral compass in righteousness. But now that's all gone. And do you know why? Because there is simply, it is true in your life and my life. You know what our problem is in our relationship with God God's got too much competition with the things of this world. And we face as God's people today tremendous competition. Too many illusions that the devil has portrayed that we think that are real. And life has become so complicated. Where once our families talked in fellowship around the dinner table has spent quality time talking together. Now it's off to all the events that in time will take the place of all the good quality time of a family. And it gives the illusion of a family being together. There's nothing that pulls the family together more than that family spending time together. God has a pattern for the family. Hey, look around you. Our society, we've been duped into it. We've all fallen for it. I hate it, but there's nothing that I can do about it. Our society has gotten farther and farther away from human contact. Nobody talks face-to-face anymore. I'll text you. I'll get your voicemail. I sent you an email. You call someplace on the phone. You get an endless series of prompts. If you're calling about something that means nothing, press 1. If you're calling about nothing that means something, press 2. If you're calling to leave us a message, but we will not call you back, press 3. It goes on and on and on. And if you don't believe me, just wait till you need to call your cable company. I hope in the quietness and the serenity of my basement... Those calls are not recorded anywhere. (laughs) Drives me nuts. We see in our world today the elimination of human contact. We see it in everything. We're once in a church where when you wanted to trust Christ as your own personal Savior, 
and you stepped out and came down that aisle, you were met by a man or a woman with an open Bible that sat down and opened up the scriptures and showed you how to come to Jesus. Today, just raise your hand and I'll give you the prayer in your seat. We don't take into consideration the confusion that might be in that person's life. The confusion about God, the deity of Christ, the idea of no concept of repentance. It's okay. We live in a Christianity today where we just want to get it done quickly. And then we can brag about the results. Or come down and here, go in a corner and read this card. America has long since lost the desire for holiness and a real relationship with God. We have fake and phony conversations amongst ourselves which only produces in a society like ours a fake and phony conversation with God. And the long winding road down to disaster has been a downhill spiral of replacing the value system of God's values with the one from the world. Every time we go to restart, the week before, I go to Walmart and buy all the water and the underwear and the socks and the things that we need. I was in line. I always try to stay right around 19 items so I can get through that express thing. <laughs> but then there's always two or three people that pay no attention to the sign. They'll have 40 items. In my basement, I'm glad that I am alone when I have these conversations. <laughs> I was in it last week for the time we went. Twelve water, two packs of underwear, extra large, some socks, batteries, stuff we pass out. And a woman in front of me had bought a television set. Not a huge one, about a 24, 20, 30 inch, I don't know. You know, it was one of those blood type ones. Plasma, plasma, uh, I don't know, I don't know. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't follow up on Hey, it's on. When the woman rang it up, it came to $1.99. The woman was ecstatic. She thought she got some great sale, only to find out that somebody, whoever that may have been, spent a nice fun time in Walmart taking the stickers with the barcodes off the expensive stuff, putting it on the cheap stuff, and vice versa. You should have saw her eyes when it clinged up $1.99. I didn't see them because I was running to the aisle to get one myself. I'm going to get nine or ten of them. They're going to be for sale in a bookstore back there for $2.99. You should have saw the disappointment on her face when she realized that that was not the real price, that somebody had duped her into changing the real price of what she wanted to buy that she thought she was getting such a deal on that now was going to cost her full price. And in our society today, what the devil has done is he's changed the value systems on things. And in your life and my life, you think you're getting a deal when you cheap shot the value system to do what you want to do. But I want you to know something. In the great Walmart of the sky, God hasn't changed his value system. 
and the value system that he once had in the 1800s and the 1700s and the 1600s and the 1900s is the same value system he has today. And the verse says, better is little with righteousness than great revenue with right. Last week I used a very simple practical example of starting and building a New Testament church and how impossible that will be without the right pattern. The verse will go right along with why churches fail today. And I know that many of you, because maybe from your line of work or you don't get into it to the depth that maybe some of the others do, I want you to realize that Christianity has pretty much fallen on its face today. In every aspect, it's failed. Most of God's people especially young people like yourself. This is why I try so hard to give you the way it used to be. I know some of you probably don't like it. Some of you probably think you wish I'd move on to something else. But I want to tell you something. One of the problems that they had with the nation of Israel, and the great prophet Haggai uh, mentioned this in Haggai chapter 2, verse 3. One of the things that got Israel into the mess that they got into, and Haggai says this, he says, you know what? You have no contrast, you have no, you have no understanding of the way it was when it was right to see how phony it is today. And I feel sorry for most of you young men and young ladies here today, I really do. I'll do my best, but even I understand that that is a failed attempt with the magnitude of what I'm up against. Most of you today have never seen a real church other than maybe this one. Most of you have never been part of a real revival. Most of you have never seen the Holy Spirit of God work in a way that is unprecedented. And you have nothing to compare what you see around you today. And you actually grow up and think, this is Christianity. No, it's not. Missions have failed today, miserably. Missions have failed because missions have lost the pattern by which the New Testament lays out missions. The family today, Christian families, they failed miserably. There's more trouble and heartache and problems in Christian homes, and it's because the pattern has failed. Marriages are unprecedented in divorce and end on the rocks with some of the most unbelievable, goofiest stuff you have ever seen in your life. And they fail because people have forgotten the pattern by which God gave for marriage. You see it in the Christian's walk with God. They have no concept of what holiness is. They think God drinks. They think God smokes. They think God, as long as you don't get drunk, it's okay to social drink with God. You can do whatever you want to do. God loves gays. God loves this. God loves everybody. God just is a nice big marshmallow up there in the sky. He accepts everybody, so we ought to accept everybody. That's not the pattern of God. The mindset of building a church today and, and I don't really care. I, I just want you to know. Today, Christianity has fallen into the same trap that the world has fallen in. That verse says, better is little with righteousness than great revenue without right. 
Christianity today has fallen into the same trap that the world is in. Bigger is better. Shinier is newer. The illusion of an $80 million church building is better than a log cabin church down in the mountain hills of North and South Carolina. What we would laugh at and make fun of compared to our Taj Mahals. We see a little log cabin down there in the hills. And we think because we got all this and they got a log cabin that God certainly would be with us. Well, better is little with righteousness and great revenue with right. We've fallen for the illusion that a hundred voice choir is better than 40 people in a congregation screaming at the top of their lungs out of their heart, how great thou art, and all of them out of tune. Someplace down in Dixon Creek, Alabama. Today in churches, the idea of a 2,000, 3,000 seat auditorium filled to capacity is a surefire mark of success. Years ago in the 70s, when this all kind of got started in Akron, Ohio, there was a guy by the name of Rex Humberg, Humbard. He was a charismatic. And uh, he had built one of the largest churches in Akron called the Cathedral of Tomorrow. It was an incredible complex. He had a prayer tire that went up 120 feet in the air. It was a restaurant at the top of it. Get closer to God while you eat. And all of the Baptist churches at that time were envious of Rex Humbert. Here's a guy who was a heretic, believed in tongues and everything else, had healing services. And here he is, has got the Cathedral of Tamar that was incredible in its day with a prayer tire, who needs that? But he had all of these great things and all these other Baptist churches around were so envious and back then, the last of the old Philadelphian boys, and I can't even remember who it was that I was standing there in a crowd when they were talking, and he made a statement that I never forgotten when they were talking about this. He said this. He says, you know what, men? Just because you got a big crowd doesn't mean you're a church. Oh, boy. There's some wisdom in that statement. Now, let me just for a moment of time and I've never done this. I probably need to go on the record for this. Let me explain to you my pattern of what a church should be based on the patterns in the Bible. You've heard me say many, many times that the model for the New Testament church, certainly the model that I build this one after, is found in Acts chapter 13 at the church of Antioch. The Bible says they were first called Christians at Antioch in Acts chapter 11. That's the first time you find the word Christian in the Bible. And that church in Antioch serves as the motto. And I wish I had time this morning to go through all of those things. In the Old Testament, I find another great pattern for what I believe it should be a pattern for the church. And it's a, it's a picture of one of the greatest men who pastored Israel uh, all through the history of Israel. Uh, his name was David. And it's found in 1 Samuel chapter 22, verses 1 through 4. David is running from Saul. And he runs down to a cave, and the, the Bible calls it the cave of Adullam. And when word passes around that David is down there, the Bible tells you that, that all kinds of people flock down to that cave. And the Bible says it was people who were distressed, people that were in debt, people that had heartache, people that had problems. 
And they all came down to that cave, and David ministered to them. And the Bible makes it very clear that there was about 400 people there. Now, I believe the Bible. I use the Bible for patterns and try to in everything I do. I believe that that's a pattern, that a church should never get past four or 500 people. It's hard to build a church of four or 500 people today. And you have mega churches out there that got two or 3,000 people in them. Somebody says, what do you do with that? Well, that's an easy solution. You want to get it down to 400? Give me a month in the pulpit. I'll have it down from 2,000 to 400 so fast you wonder what hits you. Then you can get something done, maybe. Now, I, I, I get this. And I explained this to the singles yesterday. We were talking about this, and Sean asked a great question. At some point in time, we will have to start another church. But we will do it in God's timetable and not your timetable or not mine. Because there's a process, there's a pattern that you have to follow. I don't know where you, we get the idea that when you start a church, the first thing you do is when you get moving, you start another church. I was a goofy pastor that, that somebody said, get up to his congregation when he started his church and said, you know what, in two or three years, all of you should be out starting churches. That's the stupidest thing I ever heard anybody say. But then he was one of the most stupidest people I ever heard. A church has to mature. A church has to stabilize. A church has to foundationalize itself. And we're in the process of doing that. I understand that. Now, this year, our church is 13 years old. That sounds like a lot of time, doesn't it? But how many of you here, if you had a 13-year-old boy or a 13-year-old daughter, would send them out to get a full-time job at a factory at Ford or GM or some full-time job and let them be on their own? Nobody would. You know why? Because... They may have been in your family for 13 years and they may have grown up and are not a baby anymore, but they haven't matured and stabilized to the point where they need to. And just like I wouldn't, you wouldn't send your daughter out, it's ludicrous to think that a church that's been around 13 years is stable enough and in-depth enough. Now, we see men and women in this church that are well along that process. But I want to say something to you. I'm not going to belabor this point. This church has never really had to face any real issues. You know why you've never had to really face any catastrophic issues? Because I faced them and never told you about them. Because I knew you were young enough and tender enough that the devil would get into the details and I wanted to protect you just as any parent protects their kid. But I want to know you to know, I'm beginning to see young men and young ladies take the role of leadership in this church that when something is done wrong and it's not done right, you don't mix any words of letting it be known. It's moving out of my realm into your realm. And this church has to face, as a church, the mark of its stability and the mark of its maturity will be when this church can face an onslaught that is going to hit any church someday and where we all stand with it. We've not faced that yet.
You learn through experience of someone else who has done it. Before I started the pastor and I was just learning the Bible, I had a thousand questions about God and the Bible. And once I got into the ministry and I started to pastor, I had a thousand more questions about what in the world was going on. And I learned rule number one. Write it down. Rule number one. Don't ever forsake the man or the woman that God puts in your life to bring you to the Bible and get you established in the Word of God. That's the stupidest thing you could ever do. You're not that smart. You just think you are. You have to mature. People have to be trained up as men and women. You build a solid support base. You take people one at a time as God chooses and build small works when you get to that point. But the mother church has to be the strong support and well-established to be able to do that. Hey, when we ever, when God ever reaches down and gets a hold of one of you guys in time and sends you out and it's clear to the body, you know what? This church will support your salary for the first year or so. You shouldn't have to worry about things like that. That's what a church is for when it's done through the church pattern. You have a team built around you. When I've sent guys out years ago and they went out and started churches, I would go out and hold revivals for them. I would take teams out. We'd canvass the neighborhood. We'd get people coming. I would preach every night for that kid for a week. That's what a mother church is supposed to do. That's the pattern found in the Word of God. Now there's two key words in this verse, verse 8. And they go along with what I'm talking to you about. So I want you to follow with me here. The two key words are righteousness. And the second word is right. These two words go together. In all we do, the two words should be key. We live our lives and do everything by the righteousness of God. That's Jesus Christ. And in all we do, we do it the right way. Righteousness and right. Bob Jones Sr. used to say, it's never right to do wrong just so you can get the chance to do right. Boy, there's so much truth to that. The patterns, the principles. And the verse says, better is little with righteousness than great revenue without right. Simply, A church of 300 with the book would be better than a church of 5,000 without the book. A church of 300 with the Bible and the right patterns will get more done than a church of 5,000 who just sit around and, and play church. You'll notice here that we don't have a Sunday night church service. We don't have a Wednesday afternoon, Wednesday night church service. I have people call me on the phone. I don't know where they get our name from. And they say, we'd like to come to your church to visit tonight. What time is your Sunday evening service start? I say 1030 in the morning. We don't have a Sunday evening service. Hey, you would think that I just said, the strippers get here at 630. We pass out the beer at 7 and then we party till about 12. 
I mean, they, they act like it's an apostasy that you don't have a Sunday night service. Some guy said, why do you have service? Why do you have service on, on, why do you have a Bible study on Thursday night instead of Wednesday night like everybody else? And I said, oh, that's easy. Because they all go to your church on Wednesday night. If they come to mine on Thursday night when they don't have church of yours, they won't be back at yours. That's why. And it works. Like Sunday night and Wednesday night are in the Bible. I, I, I don't even try to explain to them. So many churches today, all they do is teach you, teach you, teach you, teach you. I'm not interested in teaching you on Sunday morning so you can come back and I can teach you some more on Sunday night. I'm interested in teaching you on Thursday night and Sunday morning and then we getting our behinds out there Sunday afternoon and Sunday evening doing something with what God gave us. And if the word behind offended you, that's better than the word I was thinking that just slipped out the wrong way. I'm sorry. You hear me say this. I say it all the time. I say it without any apology. I put some up of you against any pastor in this country of understanding the scriptures. And in truth, I think the ratio is probably closer to 10 to 1. 10 of them up against one of some of you. I have absolute confidence and no fear at all of many of you, guys and gals, could be thrown into a mix of Laodicea and lukewarm milk toast Christians or pastors. And you'd handle it and defend that book and stand for truth to the ratio of 10 to 1. Somebody says, where'd you get that ratio? It's a pattern. Read Daniel chapter 1. Daniel and the boys wanted to stay with the Bible. Nebuchadnezzar wanted to eat the filth of his Christianity. Daniel said, hey, look. You let us digest the Bible. You let your guys do what they want to do. At the end of 10 days, bring us together. We'll see who's smarter. At the end of 10 days, he did. And you know what? The Bible says Daniel and the boys were 10 times better than all the king had. All his magicians. You know what you've got in Christianity today for the most part? A bunch of magicians. You know there's real no magic David Copperfield didn't make that 747 disappear. He didn't have that elephant just up and disappear. It's all an illusion. The hand's quicker than the eye. They'll do things, distract your attention, and then bring an illusion. That's exactly what the devil does. And the only thing that keeps the illusion from continuing to be the illusion is something that cuts right through the illusion. And you know what it is? Better is little with righteousness than great revenue without right. The Bible. Some of the biggest churches in this country that so many people say, look at us, look at us. They ought to be saying, look at Christ. Pastors today, I was, I was re- I've been reading a book the last couple of weeks on the Tower of London. English history, I can't get enough of it. Uh, English history to me is just a magnet. And a lot of it has to do with the fact that England is the history and the birthplace of our Bible. Uh, but there's so many things in England that are just have so much history connected with them. And I was reading a book on the Tower of London. 
And it was talking about how that it was originally built by William the Conqueror way back in 1000. It's been around for almost 1500 years. Incredible. And it goes on there and it talks about all the kings and the queens. And I can just spend all day watching how God down through English history manipulated the kings and the queens in that country to give up you the Bible. We all know about Henry VIII. And he was one of the most lousiest kings as far as a personal thing that, that England ever had. And how he, he was married to Catherine of Spain. And he, he fell out of favor with her and he fell in love with a, a woman by the name of Anne Boylan. And he went to the Pope and asked the Pope to give him a decree of divorce because the Pope's the only one that could do that. And the Pope refused. And then... Henry VIII come up with the idea, I'll break with the Roman Catholic Church. I'll start my own church. And he started the Church of England, got rid of Catherine, married Anne. How'd you like to go to a church that got started because a guy wanted to divorce his wife? That would be the Episcopal Church, Anglican Church, Church of England. You know, that doesn't seem to bother anybody. I don't even go to that church and it bothers me. See, you get a choice. You can either belong to the church of Jesus Christ and Antioch or one that Henry VIII started because he fell out of love with Anne of Catherine of Spain and wanted to marry his love Anne. But forget that. Oh, God gets in the mix. Catherine of Spain had a marriage, had a, had a, had a, he broke with Catholic church. Catherine of Spain had a daughter whose name was Mary. Who after Henry VIII died, his son Edward I took over the throne. After he died, Mary came to the throne, Bloody Mary, and she brought him back to the Roman Catholic Church. Anne Boylan had a daughter whose name was Elizabeth. And after Mary was off the throne, Elizabeth came on the throne and brought about a stabilization of, Israel, of England back to, back to the Bible, which paved the way for James I, which gave you your King James Bible. Oh, boy, I can get into that stuff all day. But you know, when I was reading that, I was reading about the kings and the queens of the olden days, and then looking at the king and the queen of England today. You know the king and queen of England today have absolutely no function whatsoever? They don't make any decisions. Parliament, they have a prime minister who runs the country. Parliament makes the decisions with him. They're just a figurehead. They have absolutely no governing power whatsoever. If the queen would come out on her little balcony and say, I want to do this, everybody would say, thank you, queenie, and go on and do what they want to do. She has no power whatsoever. When they get a king, they have no power whatsoever. They're just a figurehead of what a great nation once was. And I got thinking about that. You know what? Baptist churches are the same way today. The pastor is just a king who sits on a throne in his little office someplace that you can't go and see. He has his little guards around him that keep you from getting access to him. He's just a figurehead of what the church used to be. He doesn't see anybody. He doesn't, he doesn't lead anything. He doesn't disciple anybody. He doesn't counsel anybody. He's just a king. It's nice to be the king. He's just a king who sits at the top 
and dominates all things and all people and gets them to do whatever his bidding is. He gives out favors to the rich and lops off the heads of the poor. Mel Brooks, <laughs> renegade Jew personified. I don't care much for his movies, but one thing he did do that I, I think is hilarious is the history of the world part one. My favorite part is when Louis XIV is on the throne and they're standing. This, this sums it up. This one, one little skit not only talks about politics, but lays every Baptist church with the wrong concept exactly where it is. Louis XIV is out there with his prime minister, and they're on a skeet range. And Louis XIV, who's the king of France, has a shotgun. And he's right there waiting, and one of his guys runs up and says, Your Majesty, the peasants are revolting. He looks at him and he says, Why? Pull! And a peasant goes flying across the sky. <laughs> That's Baptist churches today, man. They'll use you for cannon fodder. They'll shoot you when you're hurting and you're down and you can't function and your marriage is a mess and your kids are a mess. The easiest way for them is just to put you out of misery with a bullet. And Christianity with the devil's Bible and music and a cheap plastic sermon has fallen for the illusion. The illusion that bigger and louder and brighter the church is, the more successful with God you must be. And in reality, it may be the greatest show on earth, but it's just another big three-ring circus with everybody in the middle as clowns. For the Bible says, what a great verse, what a great reality check verse for every pastor. For the Bible says, remember the Bible? For the Bible says, you know, the B-I-B-L-E, that's the book for me. I stand alone on the Word of God, the B-I-E-L-E, Bible. What a verse. Better is little with righteousness than great revenue with right. I mean, incredible. Now, here's another key word in our verse that we need to look at. The word revenues. Revenues without right. There's an old saying going back to the 1920s. There was a, they didn't have television at that point. There was a radio broadcast show called Buck Rogers. Buck Rogers was a futuristic space guy that had all the, the best and latest equipment to fight evil. In fact, when you look at it back in the day, it's a perfect picture of Christ and the devil. He was the righteous Christ, and a guy by the name of Ming, who dressed in black, was the evil guy that he was always fighting. It's incredible stuff. The guy back there who played, played uh, a Buck Rogers was a guy by the name of Buster Crab, long dead. And when it comes to the 2021st century and the megachurch concept, it's, no true, it's so true, this saying. And the saying that got popular back there was, no Bucks, no Buck Rogers. And that is so true today. Because in the megachurch concept, you have to have an incredible revenue come in to keep your fantasy world of illusion going, to keep the Disneyland of Christianity operation. You know how the world's of fun? You know what keeps the people coming out there? Because let's face it, and I know some of you bought season passes. I won't tell you how foolish you are for doing that. I, 
No, I'm just kidding you. <clears throat> but you know why they keep, I mean, honestly, you've been out there once. I mean, you pay $100 to get in. Half the rides are not working. <laughs> You'll stand there after you paid $100 to get in, put your money in those little fuzzball things you knock down, and you'll spend, what, 60 more dollars to get a thing you could buy down a U.S. toy for 20 cents? Genius. Genius. So you pay $100 to get in, then you pay $60 to get your little Cupid doll, and then you take your family to eat over there, and that's another $647. $20 for a cheeseburger? $4 for a bottle of water, which you can get two cases for that at Walmart. I know. I buy them every other week. <laughs> you know how they keep you coming back? They add a new attraction every year. You know how churches keep you coming back? They've got to keep adding new gimmicks, new attractions. They don't have a Bible. You know, your success is not based on hardcore results, but rather new gimmicks. We have a restaurant. We have a rockaball court. We have a fountain out front. We have three different services. You can take your pick. We have Starbucks coffee. We have McDonald's. We have a fitness center. Anything to keep the illusion alive that, wow, look at what God's doing. God's at Starbucks. You go to a McDonald's in 350 Highway or down in the plaza, there's a statue of Ronald McDonald sitting there. You go in these churches and Jesus is there with Ronald trying to win him to Christ. <laughs> the services aren't built around the Word of God. They're built around raising money. You know, in Nehemiah chapter 8, when Nehemiah wanted to preach to the people, traditionally, Baptists down through history has always had the pulpit right in the middle. You go to a Methodist church or a Presbyterian church or a Catholic church or whatever, Episcopalian, the pulpit will always be off to the side. Baptist churches traditionally always have it right in the middle. And in Nehemiah chapter 8, the Bible says that when Ezra wanted to get up and preach to the people, he made a pulpit of wood and he set it right there. You know why Baptist churches always put the pulpit in the center? Because they wanted to make sure that the center of attention in any church was the Word of God and the preaching of the Word of God and the reading of the Word of God. I talked to a guy one time, and he was so excited. The church, he was just, he was, I was preaching somewhere, and, and, and he was attended, and he says, I go to so-and-so First Baptist Church in Waterloo over here or something like that. And he says, he says, we had a great service this morning. We, we're going to build a new building. $40 million complex. And he said, We just had our first offering this morning, and boy, is our church excited. We raised $500,000. I looked at him and I said, that's incredible. You know what? Now you only got to do that 80 more times. See the illusion versus the reality? The illusion is a $40 million building. Wow, we raised $500,000. The reality is you got to do that 80 more times. Woo! 
I'd like to have that pressure on your back as a pastor. Now, as I stated, I believe God has a pattern for building a church, and I believe that God has a pattern for sustaining a church once it started. In 13 years here, I've never preached one sermon on giving. I never passed out pledge cards. I never held a stewardship banquet to trick you into giving. In fact, I've told you there's seven stewards that's found in the Bible, and not one of them has anything to do with money. Now, here's the difference between a revenue of right and a revenue of wrong. This is a great verse. The revenue of right of any church. The key to a successful ministry is not about the things we have. The tools of the illusionist. The professional Christian con artist. The real mark of God's church will never be a building, but rather be the spiritual quality of the people. You don't in ministry build buildings. You build people. I ever heard one time two or three pastors talking about comparing their church's net worth. One guy said, oh, it's all we have. We're probably close to $100 million. Guy said, well, that's really good. We're probably close to 150 on our campus. Campus? I thought it was the church. Not, not even churches anymore. They're campuses. Some other guy said, well, that's good. I suspect to get all our stuff together, we're around $200 million. And they talked like that really meant something. Like God is up there going, hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they had invested all of their lives in building buildings and never spent one hour investing it in people. I walked away smiling to myself, adding up our church net worth. I ain't kidding you. 250 people worth $1 billion apiece. That's a net worth of $250 billion. And then add to it the unsearchable riches of the Word of God that you couldn't put a price tag on. And man, we make them look like a bum on Skid Row. Homeless homie. Did I say that right? It's the difference between net worth and man's eyes, which is a revenue of wrong, and net worth in God's eyes, which is a revenue of right. When you build the illusion of a church, a mega church, you'll beg for money all of your life. You know why? It's simple. If God didn't order it, he's not going to pay for it, so you're going to have to do it. So you build people. One-on-one, one person at a time, one family at a time, one couple at a time. Proverbs 31, 16 says, By the fruit of your hands you plant a vineyard, and by the labor of love you win them one at a time. You invest in them. You give them what they need first. You don't sit around and wait for them to do something for you. You invest yourself totally into whatever their needs are. When you invest in them, when you invest in teaching, training, and invest in them, they will invest in you, and in time they will invest in what God's doing because they'll see God in it. The greatest asset of this church will never be what we have other than maybe the camo packs. 
That's what I'd always say. God walked me through his big mega church one time, showed me this, showed me that, showed me the restaurants. Took me into this huge bookstore. Not one Bible in it. He says, what do you think? I said, where do you keep the camouflage packs? <laughs> he didn't have any. The greatest asset of this church will never be what we have. It will be each one of you. A peculiar treasure. Pearl, great price. Men and women who started out in your life as just an old piece of lump of coal. Useless to anybody but to burn. And through the pressures of your life, once you gave your life to God, you know what he did? The same thing he does with a lump of coal. He molds it through pressure and time. And every diamond you ever saw and every diamond you ever have in your ring started out as a piece of worthless, lumpless coal that through the pressure of time it came into being a diamond and God takes you and me as a lump of coal and through the pressures of life, when you give your life to Him, He has molded you into a diamond fit for the Master's use. That's what you got. That's where the real value is in churches. It isn't people who play church. It's people who are the church. It's people who understand what God is doing. I've told you many times in the Christian life, and particularly at church, we have designated responsibilities. And God has his designated responsibilities. I think the greatest single thing I ever learned outside the fact that I did have a Bible that I could trust with everything was the day I understood what my job was as a Christian and later on as a pastor and then what God's job was. My responsibility is not to do God's job. Too many of God's people get into the ability of trying to do God's job and you just mess it up. A lot of pastors try to get into doing God's job. I've seen pastors get up there and preach a sermon, good sermon, give me an invitation and preach a hundred stanza for somebody to come forward. You know why? Because they're trying to do God's job. Let me tell you something. I don't look at it that way. We don't sing any stanzas. We don't beg anybody to get saved. I figure if the preaching of the unadulterated Word of God is not going to move your heart for you to get saved, anything I say after that's not going to do it. The playing of some song is not going to do it. I believe that when the Word of God is preached, God will do His work of His office, and that work is to move in your heart to get saved. That's not my job. My job is to preach the Word of God straight, hot, and true, right on the money, right down the line, right across the plate, waist high, where you can swing at it. And after that, it's God's job to do in your heart the decision you've got to make. My responsibility is not to do God's job but to stay focused on my job. I find and search out through the scriptures. I get the patterns of everything that God wants me to do. And then I do them right. He'll be my support. And he'll get me all that I need when I need it so I don't have to spend time uh, uh, on those things. I don't have to spend time worrying about things that's God's responsibility. So many of God's people waste their whole day worrying about things that you can't change, that only God can change, and if you would just learn to let him do his job and you do your job, you'd be a lot better off. I'm free to do what God has called me to do. Let's build people. 
I do that better than anything else in life. That's my job. And he takes care of the rest. Me getting into doing God's job just complicates my whole process. Because now I'm up against things I can't control. Now I have to worry. I have to fret. I have to get heartburn. I have to get anxiety, high blood pressure. Now I have to take Prozac. Now I have to go see my therapist. It's just a lot easier to look at it and say, hey, Lord, you know what? Yeah, that's a mess. Boy, I'm sure glad that's your job, not mine. <laughs> Get to it. <clears throat> it's just so uncomplicated when you recognize that there's some things that you are responsible for and there's some things that his response. Quit trying to do his job. And it doesn't matter if it's building a church, pastoring a church, or in your own personal life. You do your job, let him do his just the way it has to work. And the verses that stands in Proverbs chapter 16, verse 8, is one of the clearest and most profound truths ever found in the Bible. Just tucked away there, one little verse that just unhinges 99% of what Christianity is today. And if that one little verse that takes its stand against the concept of the mindset of churches today, of the Laodicean church age, the church of the closed door. And it's totally rejected today, like the rest of God's Word. It's rejected so a man, a pastor, can build a legacy unto himself, a monument to him and his passion to be like a king, a passion. Remember, the biggest problem the devil had was he wanted to be like Most High. The scribes and the Pharisees, the Bible says, they love the upper rooms and the seat in the high places. Better is little with righteousness than great revenue without right. Let's pray. Father, we...